Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house and to worship you. We thank you for including us in the beloved. Now, Lord, make us satisfied in Christ alone to kill all idolatry in our lives where we get our identity, significance, and security from Christ alone. Make us sympathetic to everyone we encounter to kill all self-righteousness in us. Permit us to have no arrogance or hubris in our dealings with anyone. Make us sacrificial in our relationships to everyone, even those who attack us. That we may kill any manifestation of an unforgiving or hateful heart. O oh God, make us more like you. We pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The maturation of grace, sanctification. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, how often, how often have we repented of some sin with the sincere resolve that the matter is over and dead? We were confident that we would not return. We reasoned that we learned our lesson and had suffered enough. However, <laughs> we shamefully returned to committing the same sin again. It was not over and dead after all. We felt like hypocrites. We knew we were hypocrites. But this was not what we wanted. We asked, what, what am I missing? I know I'm, I'm saved, so, so, so what's going on? I'm not supposed... Well, I, am I not supposed to hate this? It seems I don't hate it, or at least I don't hate it enough. Am I even saved? What's wrong with me? Help somebody. Well, we were right about one thing. Something is radically wrong. We either did not understand repentance or we did not have a clue about pulling it off. Our so-called repentance was defective. Well, what now? What now? The great Martin Luther maintained that all of life is repentance for the Christian. This concept is not appreciated for the most part by many professing Christians today. Many seem to believe that, practically speaking, repentance is something necessary for egregious violations. <laughs> that it is something for when we have done something majorly wrong. Horrendous or notoriously wicked. This erroneous idea is that ordinarily Christians are supposed to walk, if they're doing it right, in, in consistent obedience, always having victory over sin and troubles, constantly rising above things, never letting anything get them get to them, and always rejoicing in the Lord. Thus, according to this perspective, 
there is no need for continuing repentance. This view would hold that those constantly repenting are probably not genuine believers in Christ, for there is just too much sin in their lives. If we are honest, we will admit that we are not one of those who scarcely need repentance. We will acknowledge that we are embarrassed that we are constantly in need of repentance, that, that, that we have often and repeatedly and sincerely sought repentance and have returned to the sin far too quickly and consistently. I need you to be honest today. <laughs> Sometimes the agony of doubting the reality of our re- regeneration is constant, and, and so is the stinging indictment of recurring hypocrisy. Even though there may be no open scandal, we know viscerally that our thoughts, our words, and our deeds have been scandalous. Listen. Let us get to the heart of the matter. Suppose we understand the gospel message. That Jesus Christ has covered our sins. That he is our savior. And that God does not accept us because of our efforts. But because of what Jesus has done. In that case. We can finally relax. Not in a pretentious moral perfection. Or a a wicked moral indifference. No, 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 no. We rest in the perfect obedience of Christ. We are accepted in Him. We are loved in Him. If, if we truly understand that, <laughs> when we see all this, all the sin we have struggled with for years, we will rejoice that we have the best spiritual insurance that ever existed, Christ's active and passive obedience. <laughs> yeah, some of you get it, you know. That was a point right there at home that I'd get some help. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Christ's active and passive obedience. The perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. And the blood of the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world imputes all our depravity to his account. (laughs) Like the woman who kissed our Lord's feet. We have been forgiven much, so we love much. Luke chapter 7 and verse 47. Our repentance will be so deep (laughs) that it releases joy and love. We are compelled to kiss the sun. You know, Psalm number (laughs) 2. Kiss the sun. We we must pour out our expensive, our most expensive perfume on this Christ, for he is worthy. Hallelujah. On the other hand, (laughs) let's suppose that we do not rest our life on the gospel. If, If we are outwardly moral and religious people, but do not rest our life on the gospel, trouble is inevitable. Trouble is inevitable. This is because 
any discovery of our sin and, and any finding of our weakness will always lead us to despair. Our repentance will prove to be defective. If it is all up to us, our failure will hit us harder and harder. It will continue to drive us to despair because we rely not on the Lord Jesus Christ for our sense of identity, significance, and security, but on our own power and ability to be consistent. Hmm. If we lack that, any discovery of our sin and any finding of our weakness will crush us, crush us to despair. To reiterate this concept, repentance is defective and leads to despair if we do not indeed and sincerely understand the gospel. There are a lot of people who are in church for years and they don't get the gospel. They don't really get it. On the other hand, repentance leads to joy and love and a burst of energy and growth. If we truly get the message of the gospel, because biblical repentance leads to a deeper appreciation, gratitude, and thrill at what Jesus Christ has done for us. Without this dynamic, we will not grow or mature in Christ. Beloved, if we find that looking at our sins and getting a more profound knowledge about them leads to utter despair, then it is appropriate to ask ourselves to explain the basis of our belief that God loves us. What is the foundation of our understanding with God? Or our standing with God? Is it our effort? Is it our moral excellence? If so, the need for repentance will just push us down. On the other hand, if the Lord Jesus Christ is truly our Savior, repentance begins a cycle of victory and maturation. We all must urgently get a biblical understanding of genuine repentance. This, listen, we will always miss the point if we do not see our sins as expressions of idolatry. I, I think I need to say that again. We will always miss the point if we do not see our sins as expressions of idolatry. Many of us think of repentance as just stopping certain kinds of external behavioral sins. However, as we examine Holy Scripture, we, we will see that the, the things the Bible talks about, such as greed or sexual immorality and so on, are idols. They are idols. For example, covetousness, greed, is called an idol in our text. You see? An idol, an idol is, is something from which we get our identity, our significance. And our security. Oh, you didn't hear me. I said an idol is something from which we get our identity, our significance, and our security. Oh, so you just thought idols were like these primitive tribes who carve a little thing out of a 
the trunk of a tree and bow down before it? Yes, that's idolatry too. Because they get their significance and <laughs> identity and security from that. <laughs> but what do you get yours from? Is it your job? Who is he? Well, you know, he is. And you list your profession. <laughs> uh, or you list um, what you think you contribute to society. Or you list what you think makes you safe. Maybe your, uh, your what, what do you call it here? Retirement fund. Four, oh, what? 401k. <laughs> or your insurance plan. What is your security? It is the thing for which you get up in the morning. That's, an, that's your God. It is your main preoccupation. That's your God. What do you think about the most? What do you talk about the most? What are you resting in the most? That's your God. Even if you get baptized and join the church. Pastor, do you really mean... I must get my identity in Christ, my significance in Christ, and my security in Christ. Yes. Nothing else. <laughs> we all have some things that we have presented at some point as our identities. In some cases, it might be relationships. Huh? In some cases, it might be financial security or independence. In some cases, it might be achievements status. It is generally different for everybody. To be clear, when we speak of our identity, we are talking about the things we see as essential to our existence. We cannot see how we will function without them. Mm. That is precisely what an idol is. It is making something else besides the Lord Jesus Christ the focus of our lives. If our repentance does not process this, our repentance is defective. <laughs> listen, the only way we can tell, and I want you to listen to me, the only way we can tell if something has been raised to the frightening level of idolatry in our lives is when God takes it away from us and then life as we know it is shut down. Mm, mm, mm. Sometimes when the stock market falls, some people jump out windows. Because <laughs> their God has failed them. What, what is it? That if God takes it away from us, our lives shut down. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's our health. What is it that if God takes it away right now, your life is shut down? <laughs> when we do not have access to that thing, it is then that we begin to realize what has been running our lives all along. To speak of identity is to use the language of popular counseling. Even better is to use the language of Scripture. <laughs> The Bible teaches that idols are the things we use to create our righteousness. That's another way of putting it. 
the things we use to create our righteousness. From God's point of view, what we have done is simply to patch up a righteousness of our own. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Philippians 3, talks about himself. He gives his personal testimony. And what did he write? Philippians 3, verse uh, 3 through 9. Let's look at that. Hmm? Philippians 3, verse 3 through 9. What did he say? For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yea, indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. That is his testimony. Now, the apostle was clearly saying that he is giving us a list of all the things that used to be his righteousness. Mm. He was saying in effect, look, 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 look at my pedigree. <laughs> look, look at my family background. Look at my career accomplishments. Look at my intellectual attainments. However, since the Lord Jesus arrested me, knocking me off my high horse on the road to the basket, <laughs> I count it all but lost. I dropped those eyes. What he means is they used to be my righteousness. They were the things I relied on and said, this is my honor, this is my glory, this is my dignity. The apostle was making it as abundantly clear that biblical Christianity requires that we give up. Give up on anything that resembles self-made righteousness. <laughs> like the apostle, we must count such things as what? Rubbish. We discreetly use the term rubbish like in the New King James, but we could go to the Old King James. He says, dung. I think I prefer that. Right. Do I have to exegete dung? <laughs> this is precisely what self-made righteousness amounts to in the eyes of a holy God. We must take the vestiges of the old man in us, the remnants of our sin-dominated past, very seriously. If we are to mortify them. If we are to kill them. True believers in Christ have sufficient corruption to put them on a treadmill of defective repentance and retarded maturation. When we become Christian, our faith affirmation is that 
We know that God accepts us only because of the righteousness of Christ. This is the essence of the gospel. However, there is a competition going on inside of us. <laughs> hmm? The old man in us is constantly challenging the new man in us. Hmm. The new man in us acknowledges that we are acceptable only in Christ. And Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ is our honor. Christ is our glory. On the other hand, we have the old man who answers, Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Of course. We must trust Christ's righteousness, but we need some credentials of our own. After all, but for a few minor errors in our lives, for the most part, we're pretty good people, aren't we? That's the old man. <laughs> Listen, folks, the more we understand the gospel, the more we have to tone down the rhetoric of boasting and the language of achievement. <laughs> the more you get this gospel, you have to check how you talk. Our God has a way of, of, of bursting our pretentious bubble of moral consistency by permitting some massive failure in our lives that we cannot hide and cannot explain away. Something goes wrong. <laughs> we just have to hang our heads in shame and embarrassment for trusting in our own righteousness. Only then can we admit that our repentance was defective, that we should have been trusting only in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Anything else is just plain childish and petulant. <laughs> we will never be spiritually upright because of what we have done or achieved. Only the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf will be efficacious. <laughs> Listen, folks, the best thing we can do right now the best thing we can do right now for our salvation and sanctification is to identify those things that we have been boasting about quickly. The things that, that we think make us unique. The same things that have nothing to do with the work of Christ to save us. When we have identified them, we must kill them. Pastor, what are you talking about? I mean, if I've been putting my work first, do I need to kill working? I didn't say that. You need to kill putting your work first. Christ must be first. We must remove them from the place of prominence in our lives. We must marginalize them, mortify them, minimize them, move them! This is not difficult to understand, you know. If something is consuming all of our energy and resources, which is draining us emotionally and relationally, and this thing has nothing to do with the work of Christ on our behalf, it simply has to go. You must demote it on the list of priorities. In all things, Christ must have the preeminence. You know what I'm talking about. 
That's all there is to it. It has to go. It must be destroyed. If we do not destroy it promptly, it will ultimately destroy us. Prove our profession to be false. Our idols must be broken into pieces. If, if this doesn't happen, our repentance will prove to be defective and lacking efficacy. And maturation will be retarded or even prove to be non-existent. <laughs> Beloved, this is precisely what the Bible speaks of when we are admonished to mortify the flesh. When the Bible says kill the flesh or war against the flesh, it does not always discuss our bodies. You hear flesh, you think bodies. Yeah. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it will sometimes say, these are the works of the flesh. Then it will list things like envy and pride, <laughs> which have nothing to do with the physical body. The word flesh does not always refer to the body, usually. When the Bible talks about the flesh versus the spirit, the flesh is the self. It is the old man of whom we spoke earlier. It is the side of us that still wants to make our own righteousness, wanting to live for our own glory. It is the part of us always trying to boast about something other than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can testify <laughs> that the single most significant and most shocking discovery of my life <laughs> has been the capacity of true believers, including myself, <laughs> to occasionally and dangerously take brief excursions into fleshly pursuits to their shame. Mm. Can we talk about this? Maybe not. Can we talk about this? I hope so. I hope so. Are we ready to be honest? We will know. We will know that we are taking a fleshly excursion when we still need to dominate every conversation. We will know that we're taking a fleshly excursion when we feel that we must carnally defend ourselves at all times. We can't leave it to Christ. We will know that we have taken a fleshly excursion when we cannot give with joy. It's a painful thing to help others and support the church. We will know that we have taken a fleshly excursion when we need the validation of persons who have nothing to do with Christ, unsaved people. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we need to be in with the times and trendy. <laughs> Even when what's in is ridiculous. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we subtly promote worldliness under the cover of religion so that whatever the world is doing motivates us to invent a Christian version. <laughs> we will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we use the truth of God's word not to enlighten others or promote grace, but to intimidate and humiliate those enslaved by sin. In other words, you use your Bible to beat up people. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion 
when we see doctrine is only valuable for winning debates, not as food for our hungry and thirsty soul. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when our mission in life is to spread gossip, not the gospel. We have high energy for tail-bearing and low energy for gospel witness. I've given a few examples. You need some more? I think I've made the point. <laughs> Listen, if any among us do not believe this applies to them, why don't they just give themselves a little test? Hmm? <laughs> we all have been to school. We know what tests are and how they're administered. So maybe I could just, if you don't think if any of this applies to you, you aren't taking a test? Let's take a test. This week, we need to make sure that in our lives, there's no gossip about anyone, no bragging about our lives, and no carnal defending ourselves when attacked. Can we do that? That's a test. Can we manage this challenge? Some may be panicking right now. What in the world am I going to do with my time? You mean I can't gossip? No gossip, no bragging, and no carnal defense of myself? <laughs> Listen, folks. Our lives are fleshy when we cannot do what is right on these matters. Many are convinced that they must destroy others they think have wronged them. Hmm. They cannot bring themselves to graciously facilitate the exoneration or repentance wherever the facts lead, <laughs> of the offender and ultimately their rehabilitation. <laughs> we are fleshly. Well, we cannot give God the glory for the blessings he has placed in our lives. We regularly engage in cosmic plagiarism, <laughs> taking credit for God's work. <laughs> we are fleshly when we cannot let God fight our battles. <laughs> We often insist on taking matters into our own hands with sinful and carnal initiatives, hoping that the end justifies the means. Beloved, our goal here is not necessarily to make anyone feel miserable. We want to facilitate in some small way a move from defective repentance to biblical repentance and maturation. We aim uh, to be very specific concerning what needs to be done. This passage from the Holy Scriptures challenges us in at least two ways. I know you were getting worried. But <laughs> Don't worry, I won't go too long. The passage challenges us in two ways. We must, number one, correctly label our malady. And number two, conspicuously lean on our Messiah. Number one, correctly label our malady. And number two, conspicuously lean on our Messiah. So here we go. Number one, correctly label our malady. I want to read again verses 5 through 8. All right? 5 through 8, where it says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked 
when you lived in them. Verse 8. But now, you yourselves are to put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Okay, so let's, let's stop right there for now. <laughs> Correctly labeling our malady. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the correct labeling of the problem that we face is half the battle. I think you know this. Taxonomy is indispensable in, to life. Even in spiritual things, you have to put the right labels on things. <laughs> if something is toxic, you better label it right. You don't want to put that in an, a bottle of orange juice. Labeling matters. Taxonomy matters. <laughs> Even in spiritual things. The Apostle Paul helps us greatly towards this end in, in these verses by chronicling this catalog of sins, which, by the way, is not an exhaustive list. We must understand that the only way the flesh can completely overwhelm and dominate our lives is if we are not aware of it at all. If we haven't labeled it. <laughs> we have not correctly named it to identify it and call it out. Put a name on it. You know the sin which doth so easily beset you. Name it. Call it what God calls it. Not, not some of these fancy modern labels that make us have fair names for foul things. <laughs> Come on now. Label it. <laughs> call it. Call it what God calls it so you can call it out. We are in great danger if we have no idea what the flesh is and how it attacks. In a battle, <laughs> in a battle, for example, we will be annihilated, wiped out, if the enemy is entirely unknown to us, if, if we don't know its location or cannot track its mobility. If you're blind to your enemy, <laughs> you're, you're dead even before you start. If, on the other hand, we can spot the enemy's movements, then we can have a big fight. We might still lose a battle on a given day, but at least we have a fighting chance to win the war if we can find them. <laughs> we must be able to see the flesh and name it in our lives. Sometimes we are so sensitive and defensive that we cannot grow. We're so busy justifying ourselves that we cannot see that this justification is also a manifestation of the flesh. We're just always defending ourselves. So we never examine ourselves. There is no meditation in your life. We, listen, you're not going to grow as a Christian if you're not into meditating. And by meditating, I don't mean like hitting some gong. No, no, no. You have to understand what meditation is in the Bible. The scriptures is how God speaks to us by his spirit. But meditation is you speaking to yourself. Aha. Uh -huh. That's different from prayer. <laughs> You ever read the Psalms? Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? <laughs> He's talking to himself. Until you understand that you need to talk to yourself about what God has said to you. 
you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. Sometimes we need to stop the justification of ourselves and do some serious meditation. Without a teachable spirit and discernment, we will not move or progress spiritually. Please do not imagine that many years in the faith equals spiritual growth. For it is possible to have one immature year repeated for many years. Any of us could be 15 years in this church with the maturity of a one-year-old believer. Because we, we don't examine ourselves. <laughs> we just assume that time makes us mature. <laughs> Our flesh will completely dominate us if we cannot see its approach. We've got to be able to name it. The flesh is approaching. If we need to control everyone around us when God has not given us legitimate authority over them. <laughs> the flesh is approaching. If we are extremely sensitive to what people think of us to the point that we're constantly getting our feelings hurt. The flesh is approaching. If we're never aware of our pride and how pride, our pride is shaped. When we begin to see the flesh for what it is, it can no longer ambush us the same way. We, we may fall prey to it on a given day or in a given week, but if we can name it and see it, we have a fighting chance to beat it. Are you naming it? Are you naming the flesh in your life? Are you correctly labeling your malady? Listen, folks. If we are fully aware of the approach and methods of a particular fleshly attack in our lives and can see it when it is coming on, it is not proper to say that we are under its dominion and control because we can see it. <laughs> we can see it. This is because seeing it is half the fight. <laughs> the people who, d who do not stand a chance of victory over the flesh are the people who are in denial and who cannot see it. <laughs> they think, oh, that's not a threat. Piece of cake. But when you can see it, for what it is, you prepare yourself. <laughs> you prepare yourself. <laughs> people who can't see it, they either, uh, they either have not named it or they have mislabeled it. Come on now. That does not mean that uh, we will always defeat it if we see it coming. However, by seeing it, we are better positioned for victory. Now, I know it's frustrating, sometimes discouraging to be constantly battered by fleshly concerns. We should not be saddened when the Lord has opened our eyes to what is happening. No, 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 no. We have already basically engaged it. The most important part of the battle is over if we can see what's going on. Can we see what's going on? <laughs> we, ha we are on a trajectory to victory if we are awake. If the enemy is after us and we are asleep, well, <laughs> there won't even be a battle. We're dead. <laughs> But if we are awake, at least there will be a battle. 
If we feel the fight inside of us, that is a sign of spiritual life, a sign of growth, a sign that God is working in us. The only people completely losing are those who, with no struggle in their lives. There is no grace in or around them to resist temptation or repent of a transgression. So, if we can see the worst in us and hate it, we're alive. If we are driven to our knees constantly for mercy and grace to help in our time of need, we're alive. If we're constantly searching the word of God for insights for beating sin that so easily besets us, we're alive. If, if, if we are more and more distrustful of our feelings and our own strength, hey, if we are increasingly convinced of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, we're alive. We're alive. If we are passionately celebrating the active and passive obedience of Christ on our, our behalf, folks, we're alive. With proper labeling of our sin, it is unmasked. Unmasking it helps us stop the silly, silly rationalizations we can cut. Don't we have a proclivity for inventing rationalization? Hmm? I mean, we're, the, we're so quick to excuse ourselves. And by the way, someone else does the same thing to us. Oh, we're so outraged. How could they? But when we're the perpetrator, oh, um, I, I know better, but, um, uh, you know, and then we have an excuse there. <laughs> Unmasking it helps us to Stop the silly rationalizations we can cock. All the lovely names we invent for our loathsome sins to make them easier to swallow. <laughs> if we do not get the grace to call the sin precisely what it is, exactly what God calls it, exposing our habitual idolatry, it will soon consume us. Listen, folks, mortification is a ruthless business. It gets real. For instance, we need to stop saying that our feelings get hurt pretty easily. Listen, that's evidence that we're bitter people. We need to stop describing our attitude as heightened concern. Listen, folks, we're eating up with, adult, with, with, with anxiety. Let's just speak the truth. We, we need to stop um, describing our relationship with someone as intense dislike. No, 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 you hate him. We need to stop talking about working on making peace with God. What? Just surrender. Submit. Stop the nonsense. Submit. That takes us right to our final point. Okay? So what did I just tell you? Hmm? Come on. What did I just tell you? Hmm? <laughs> yeah. Correctly what? Label our malady. Secondly, conspicuously lean on our Messiah. Hmm? Conspicuously lean on our Messiah. And I want to read again verses 9 through 11 to make this point. Conspicuously lean on our Messiah. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you have put off what? The old man with his deeds and have put on what? 
the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. But what? Christ is all and in all. <laughs> so what is the point? What's the point? Conspicuously leaning on our Messiah. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, having labeled our sin correctly, the next step is to deliberately and conspicuously stand on the person and work of Christ. Stand on the person and work of Christ. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Listen, a casual and indifferent association will not cut it. The maturation process flows unimpeded by deliberate and intentional dependence on Christ's righteousness. This is how we destroy the power of sin in our lives. This is precisely what we forget when we go on those sinful excursions. <laughs> to experience victory, we must divest ourselves of our idols and stake everything on the active and passive obedience of Christ. What's that? <laughs> this means that we will not join the cultural crowning or coronation of the self. That's what the culture is all about. How do I feel? What's the desire of my heart? Hmm? How do I want to identify? Hmm? Huh? We can't join that. Our help comes from Christ's righteousness and atonement, not our achievement. We must take our sin to Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Oh, you didn't even hear me. You got another opportunity right there. Huh? Before long, I may turn you into some Antiguans. <laughs> I said we need to take our sin to Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Hmm. Listen, folks. If we take our sin, our sinful indulgence to Mount Sinai, we only think about its danger and worry about painful consequences. Come on now. We only focus on how the idolatrous excursion has messed up our lives. Mm. Our focus is on the punishments that will probably come on us because of our grave error of judgment. That is not biblical repentance. That's self-pity. Oh Lord, help me. I said, that is not biblical repentance. That's self-pity. <laughs> that is why our so-called repentance must be called defective. Self-pity and repentance are two different things. Self-pity is thinking about what a mess our sin has gotten us into and regretting it. This must be put off. Self-pity is thinking about its consequences. What a wreck it has made of us. How God is probably going to get us for this. <laughs> and all the problems it will create in our lives that may have already begun. 
So we start to cry. Oh Lord, I'm so sorry that this has happened. Oh Lord, please stop the pain. It hurts so much. I promise, I promise, I promise. I've learned a lesson. And we're saying in effect, I hate the consequences of this sin. <laughs> However, we have not learned to hate the sin itself. Mm. Our repentance is defective and our maturation is retarded. Instead of hating the sin, we're merely hating the consequences of the sin and, and hating ourselves for being so stupid to fall for that. It's not biblical repentance. With the defective repentance of self-pity, we will continue to love the sin and the sin will continue to have power over us while we continue to hate ourselves. Hmm? <laughs> Let me cut to the chase. <laughs> Genuine repentance, biblical repentance, will ask a different question. We will ask instead, what has my sin done to my God? You didn't hear me. <laughs> when you're really repentant, you will ask, what has my sin done to my God? What has my sin cost Christ? How does my sin grieve the Holy Spirit? What does God feel about it? One of the great Puritans understood this very well, and he wrote, and I quote, A legal conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice chiefly. An evangelical conviction of sin from a sense of God's goodness. Let me explain. <laughs> it is one thing to be chastised by a whipping. It is another thing to be chastised by weeping. You say, Pastor, I, I don't get it. Okay, let me, let me put it this way. Has anyone here as a child gotten a whipping? Put up your hand. Okay, those who didn't put up their hand, okay, we, we already know what your problem is. Hmm? I, I got some whippings as a child, and it psychologically damaged me. I now have a psychological problem called respect for others. <laughs> Oh, we need, I needed those weapons. <laughs> okay, well, let me get to the point now. It is one thing to be chastised by a whipping, and quite another thing to be chastised by weeping. As a parent, which would you prefer? Your children doing what is right because they are afraid to feel your whip? Or your children doing what is right because they're afraid... To break your heart. <laughs> My parents were very, very stern, you know, so I was afraid of them. So I behaved, and I needed to be afraid of them. As I matured, the whippings were less and less. <laughs> My wife told me that her parents, uh, her, 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 she was raised by her aunt. Her aunt, when she disobeyed, would just cry. And it had the same effect like my whippings. <laughs> she said, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Oh, my. <laughs> I promise, I promise. 
I'll to just weep. <laughs> I actually think hers is more effective. Um, but I know as a parent that I would be more, well, I'd be happier if my children are responding because they don't want to break my heart. Not just because of the whip. Now, most of us need both. The chastisement with the most significant impact is not the whipping, it's the weeping. Please do not miss the point. Corporal punishment is a crucial and indispensable tool in the training of young children. The whip is essential for the containment of evil when there is no rational or, or conscientious appreciation for the precepts of God. It is a vital tool for restraining those who are immature. They can't figure out the whole thing yet. A little spanking will help them understand. Okay, so we got that out of the way. How do we know that we are growing spiritually? We know it when our motivation for obedience is not merely a fear of punishment, but a love of purity. Oh, you didn't even hear me. I said we will know we are really growing up spiritually when our motivation for obedience is not merely a fear of punishment, but a love purity. Godly parents know that their efforts at child rearing have been met with some semblance of success. If the children are not merely concerned about obeying what they are told is right, but have genuinely grown to love what is right. You know you're on the right track when the kids love what's right. We know that we are maturing spiritually when we are moved more by the cross of Christ than by the consequences of our crimes. We know that we are joyfully maturing when our focus is on doxology <laughs> that is basking in the glory of Mount Calvary instead of being burdened by the debilitating worry inspired by Mount Sinai. <laughs> Having unmasked the sin in our lives, we must take them to the cross of Christ. The way to destroy the power of sin in our lives is to take them to the cross. Where we can see our Lord Jesus dying a death of condemnation on our behalf. An infinite death that we should have died. He did not have to physically be there on the cross to experience an eternity uh, of pain for he was in, an infinite being and so was his blood he didn't have to stay on that cross forever he was an infinite being and he was using infinite currency his own infinite blood to pay off our infinite debt hallelujah <laughs> at the cross at the cross at the cross we will see the blood, the crimson tide, that infinite stream healing the wounds of our iniquity. At the cross, we will see hope coming alive, melting the, the clouds of despair that have a perpetual overcast over the skies of our life. At the cross, at the cross, we will see a Savior so committed to our holiness that He emptied Himself to fill us up. At the cross, 
we will see that our sin insults the Holy One of Israel, who, as our ultimate benefactor, has been rewarded with the spit, our spit and profanity. At the cross, we will see that we are free in Christ and no longer have to hate ourselves. We just have to hate our sin. I think Isaac Watts puts it better than me. <laughs> Was it for crying that I have done? He groaned upon that tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond decree. He also wrote, but traps of grief can never repay. The debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. <laughs> to these satisfying verses, Ralph E. Hudson added a sweet refrain. You know it? You know it. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. I cannot speak for anyone here, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy because of the word, the work of my Lord. I'm happy. I'm happy to know that my old account was settled <laughs> long ago. I'm, I'm happy to know that my burdens were lifted at Calvary. I'm happy to know that I have an advocate with the Father, <laughs> Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm happy that Christ ever liveth to make intercession for us. I am happy that my sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. I'm happy that Jesus has prepared a place for people, uh, a place in glory. I'm happy that my Lord will never leave me, <laughs> nor forsake me. I'm happy that Jesus lived the life for me that I should have lived. I'm happy that Jesus died the death for me, that I should have died. I know that I'm not the only one who's happy right here in the personal work of Christ. Our Lord is worthy to be praised. He has broken the shackles of sin with his perfect righteousness and his atoning death. He has removed the sting of death. He has utterly defeated the power of hell. Thank God for his sanctifying grace because by it, we can correctly label our malady and we can conspicuously lean on our Messiah. To God be the glory. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised goodness to your servants. You have left us nothing to ask from your hands but what you have already freely granted. Establish forever the word you have spoken concerning your servants. Do as you have said, Lord, and let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of armies, he is the God of Israel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.